You're listening to Spinning Around with Hailey Minogue on Area 3000. And we're back. Thank you very much to my very good friend DXL coming onto the show and whipping up a wonderfully stormy mix for the last 60 minutes. It's always so nice to chat to old friends on the show. I get to loosen up and we can talk about anything and everything. But what's also fantastic is having the opportunity to meet new people and learn the ins and outs of how they think and how they feel, which is exactly what we're about to do with our next guest tonight. Hope you're all settling in comfortably this Monday night. It is around 7 or just past 7 p.m. AEDT, and remember, folks, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in for more conversations and mixes with dance music's latest and greatest. My next guest tonight is a Warring-based Gamilaroi DJ, community lawyer, and advocate that is fast becoming a club mainstay since her beginnings in 2020. Along with several local greats including Tangela, Heizima, and AK Sports, she's a graduate of FBI Radio's electronic artist program, Dance Class, and has since spread her wings, making close connections to institutions like House of Mints, Athletica, and Leon. Her talents as a DJ have been noticed by the likes of Nina Las Vegas for her Apple Music mix series, NLV Presents, and we'll see her playing at many upcoming events including Untitled's Beyond the City and Day Party Number 7, Club Bizarro with Jensen Interceptor, and Picnics Dance, Dance, Dance. With an infectiously unapologetic brand of Duke, Jersey, Footwork, UK Bass, and more, I'm quite excited to have her on the show as my second and final guest tonight. My guest is none other than Emma Bastable, a.k.a. Crescendo. Hey, Emma, welcome to the show. How are you going? Hey, how are you going? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Thank you, thank you for the intro. No, that's okay. Um, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to come onto the show. I know that you're very busy. Not only are <laughs> you a uh, very busily booked DJ, but also a lawyer and an advocate. It must be hard balancing all those three things at once. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly think that they're not in contradiction. Um, for me, like the, the work that I do for my day job as a lawyer um, gives me passion to DJ and vice versa. Um, yeah, for me, the, um, the two halves of, you know, the same coin. The yin and yang. It's yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the two pieces that complete each other. I don't think I could do either alone, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I, I'm the same. Um, for, for those who don't know on the show, I'm also a community lawyer as well. So it's nice to meet a fellow community lawyer here too, but <laughs> I've tried to do each separately and, I am so sad when I do only either of those two things uh, by themselves. I find that having that balance, much like you, like it seems to make me feel a little bit more well balanced, like comfortable. Yeah, life. I mean, we 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 had an experience with that, right? Like, well, at least I did in Sydney um, mm-hmm. with um with lockdown this year. Like, I was just working. Like, that was literally all I did. <laughs> and and don't get me wrong, like I I love my job. But, yeah. Like the the content can be very heavy, and I think without having that sort of, um, you know, connection to the, to the community, it, it feels very like, um, abstract at times. And it also is just like quite heavy. You know? It just like weighs you down. How do you handle that? Like we, we deal with heavy stuff all the time and you more so because you're dealing with the very pertinent issues that are going on with your kin, essentially. I mean, I hardly see any Koreans where I work, but <laughs> <laughs> um, for, for you, it's very different. Like, yeah, it's possible. yeah. How do you sort of manage that? I suppose, vicarious trauma um, that you might find yourself susceptible to? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. Um, I guess for me, um, I I do really enjoy the work. It's just staying in that, in in that headspace for extended periods of time is, is the most difficult bit thing. So I I like to just like really break up my week. So like I play like netball normally like two to three nights a week, Mm. um, like in, in, 
an insane amount of games. Like, I, yeah, <laughs> but before COVID, I was playing like seven or eight games a week. Whoa. I know. Whoa. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and on top of that, just like going to parties and, you know, meeting up with friends, um, getting, getting amongst the, you know, the, the dance scene in, in Sydney. Um, of course. I, I, I think you can, like, you can touch, you can touch like the, the stove kind of thing. Like, it's, mm. it's one of those things where it's like, um, you know, it, it, it does creep up on you. And when, when, when it builds and builds and builds and then finally it kind of like needs an outlet. And for me, so all those other things that I do outside of my work, um, that's the way of like making sure that I don't reach that point where I just like feel like I'm going to explode because of like all the <laughs> shit things that happened in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is, I guess this is something that you've sort of been uh, stress tested for because you've seen this stuff all your entire life. Um, this is not something that you're new to. The particular analogy that you pointed towards, which was um, putting your hand on the stove. Reminded me of that analogy about uh, how frogs get boiled. Do you know about that? No, no. So so they say that you never uh, boil a frog in boiling water. You put a frog in cold water and then you uh, heat it up slowly and it won't ever notice that it's getting boiled until it's too late. Right. But in your case... I love that. <laughs> I love that analogy. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> in, in your case, you, you know when to jump. And you know when to go and get the hell out of that pot and just release yourself in catharsis, I suppose, with like music and netball. I wonder though, so you know those activities that you do outside of your day job. So for example, like what you do with Crescendo, what you do with um, netball as well. At what point do you draw the line between uh, engaging in those activities as escapism or um, actually nurturing just a different side of you? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. Um I, I think the common element in the things that I do outside of work is that, like, they're based in the body. Mm. Um, I think, um, you know, the, the legal work that I do is very, um, you know, in your head. Um, it's very, uh, you know, cerebral, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, just going back to that sort of yin and yang kind of thing, um, like, I spend so much of my week, like, just in my head, like, you know, thinking about legal issues, and, you know, writing writing stuff for clients and stuff i think for me um in order to like fully be in my head i need to be able to also have like outlets where i can just like explore like movement and you know like being around people as well and Mm. um yeah did you know that there is another crescendo in the u.s and she's taking all of your events on resident advisor i know um, this is actually like an ongoing issue. Oh, fuck. Um, I've uh, reached out to Arts Law Center, so shout outs to them. Um, I haven't actually heard back yet, but I've. That's just... kind of classic Arts Law Center, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. Um, but yeah, no, um, finally got my shit together and, and like put in an inquiry with them. Um, it's, it, yeah, I feel like there's a, there's a lot of layers to that, to that topic. Um, like they're like, as far as I can tell, they're like a white, Psytrans artist, yeah, <laughs> who's, who's like had dreads in like as recently as 2019. Yeah. Um, so I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing? Mm, like, mm. but also like they work hard, and you know they've, they've they've done the grind for however many years, you know, and I, I respect that. You know, it's it, it yeah, it, they probably have put a lot of work into into what they do. Yeah. Um, I mean, partially what also annoys me is like, it's a fucking Daft Punk song. Like. I know, I know. <laughs> I saw that. Like, it's was... not an original idea. Like,
Did you get the name from the Daft Punk song? Yeah, yeah. No, I, and honestly, I'm actually... Like, a, a big thing about DJing, actually, for me, has been just, like, being on stage and performing. Like, I'm actually generally a pretty shy person. Um, mm. So that was, the, I think, by far the big, biggest barrier to me was just, like, putting, like, you know... Um, myself out there i guess and you know being kind of the focus of attention for an event or whatever um so yeah i was just kind of freaking out and i was just like what am i gonna do what am i gonna call myself like i don't know and then i was just like you know what like i love daft punk like that 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 album is probably like my favorite album of all time um hell yeah you know let's just let's just go with an an homage you know even though i'm, not, I'm probably never gonna play house but you know <laughs> we, we love house um and, i mean yeah. that could change who knows, who yeah, knows? yeah i mean I, I feel like it's there's elements of everything you of know course. like and 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 that's also how i approach my music i guess like i don't really look at it as in terms of genres i'm just like what's fun you know like yeah. what am i what am i vibing at the moment <laughs> this sounds good <laughs> um what's your favorite song of that album i i personally digital love Nothing will beat that for me. I can probably tell you my most played song. Um, Please do from, from that album. So yeah, I have I've played the album Discovery by Dark Punk fourteen hundred and seventy one times. Okay, my most Whoa! played song is one. My most played song is one more time, which makes sense. Okay, okay. Um, 1400. But you know what? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say I, I'm gonna say. Oh, it's hard. It's like it's literally like choosing ch- children for me, but it's it's got to be like either aerodynamic or digital world. Mm, I would say mm, aerodynamic is a strong choice. That whole that whole album, you know, Daft Punk now is saying that they're just finished forever. I never really believe it when big artists say like, "Oh yeah, we're just done forever. We're ne- never <laughs> doing this again." Like ACDC has said that like what? How many times now? Like five, six times. They always keep getting back together for the bank. Do you think that Daft Punk will get back together and keep doing this? Um, I'm, I mean, I'm still bitter about not getting to see them when they like played in 2007. Oh. <laughs> still bitter. <Yeah. laughs> um, I, I don't really care, I guess, to be honest. Yeah, like, you know, true. I feel like they, they're such a significant part, part of so many people's lives. Like they've had their impact, you know, whatever they want to do now, like, honestly, it's up to them. Like, um, I'm not, <laughs> Thank I, you for your service. I'm not going to like, yeah, tell them what to do, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I did like the video. I don't know if you've seen it, like the oh, yeah. farewell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I thought I thought that was a you know if they want to finish that project completely, I feel like that was a really nice like note to go out on. So, did you come up with the crescendo name uh, in FBI Radio Dance Class? Yeah, well, it was it was very like sudden, I guess. Like you know, I applied like you know in January last year. We were all such you know tender babies back then. <laughs> like did not did not know what was going to happen, right. but. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think that they, they were just like, okay, well, you, you like, you know, we're going to throw an event. Like, what's your name? And I'm like, all right, fuck, I got to choose something. Ooh. So, yeah, I think for some people, like, they've been sitting on it for ages. But for me, I, I just, like, had to sort of, like, make a decision, I guess. It was kind of like a, you know, I'm like, this this this, this feels right. Um, it, it's, re- it's resonating at the time. And I honestly, like, didn't think, I would be playing that many gigs. So I was like, it's not that big of a deal <laughs> to like, really? no, I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I guess, yeah, you always go in with like, I, me personally, I, I went into the project with pretty like low ambitions. I was like, Oh, if I get to play like two or three gigs, like, you know, I'll, I'll be happy with that. And then it's just, you know, 
kept going, I guess. And shit. Yeah. What are you going to do now that it's like kind of blown out of proportion? <laughs> no, 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 not out of proportion, <laughs> but like fr- out of your expectations, you know, like, um, yeah. cause you're getting, you're playing beyond the city soon. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's totally wild. I mean, honestly, um, as long as I can still like go to the parties that I would normally be going to. And then like, sometimes I'll play them as well. Like, I'm just like, yeah. You know, I, I don't I don't think I have any like ambitions outside of, you know, Australia or anything. Even like probably like not really outside of Sydney. Um Really? You don't want to come down to Nub sometimes? No, I mean of course, of course. But like, you know, I'm <laughs> my my focus has always been like the, the Sydney dance music community. Cause like that that's where that they you know that's where I was kind of like uh, you know, um what do you call it? Like blessed or whatever. Like initiated, right? Initiated, yeah, exactly. Like they, they really, really took me um, in under their wing, and yeah, it, it was always just like um, me DJing was just an extension of like how much I love that scene. Yeah, <laughs> was was House of Mints like the first place that you went that you really sort of fell in love with clubbing? Or yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, so I had like a bit of a um, bit of a journey i guess with um with, with with music and clubs and stuff um so yeah obviously i um i'm trans so i i, I transitioned in uni and um mm-hmm. you know I, I had like a little bit of clubbing before i transitioned like when i was like 18 19 um so i was going to um like emo nights and like <gasps> um oh, oh this is really iconic i always get the name which is <laughs> depressing but yeah there was this iconic bar on oxford street yeah that used to um, run um, like parties on like a Thursday night. Is I that think. like Factory or something? Fuck, I, I kind of remember that. Um, we had one in Nam as well back. But then. yeah, the, the name of the event is, is Hot Damn that I used to go to. Hot Damn. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, but yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it, and it makes sense in retrospect now, like because it's it is like a very uh, you know freak flag, you know gender nonconforming kind of. Uh, audience did, and did you have a big emo fringe no i i did not i did not, I did not dress emo at all I, I definitely listened to the music i was like fallout boy was the first uh live act i ever saw oh uh, that would have been <laughs> was, so good it was amazing i was definitely um really really invested in that scene but yeah i, I didn't really look the part um i was just you know i just wore skinny jeans like you know loose baggy t-shirts and yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. but other than that like in terms of hair i kind of just like didn't didn't or, or makeup or eyeliner or any or any of that stuff didn't didn't get super into it, um, but yeah. So yeah, there was the, there, there was a few years where I was doing doing that, and then I transitioned in uni, and then I started going to like queer events. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Birdcage in Sydney, um, like golfing, um, heaps gay. Mm. Um, yeah, but I I would say Birdcage was by far the one I was going to the most often. Um, and I still love that crowd. I love that energy. It's kind of sad. It's been like the venue that it's been moved so many times and it, it will, it will keep going, I think like yeah. for, for the foreseeable future, but it was at um, Zanzibar, which is like another iconic venue that's now shut down in, in Sydney. Damn. Um, it's, it's now like a, like a, um, like an Irish bar. Um, um, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? That's going to make more money than fucking Zanzibar. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I was I was going to those sorts of events a lot, and like loved the crowd, loved the people. felt felt pretty accepted there as well. Like this was my first sort of events after I transitioned. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, I think eventually I just kind of like got a bit over hearing the same songs again, again and again. Um, what two and, and two? Yeah, like two <laughs> on and repeat. Two, yeah. two and two. Just, like 
I I swear, like every single the music every night was just interchangeable. You know what I mean, like yeah. there was there was yeah. no difference. Like no one was making a statement. You know, it was just this is the background noise that we're going to put on. Mm. You know, for the time that you're there. I feel like I'm being like unnecessarily harsh to clear parties. Not so at all. Clear, not clear at parties, all. I love you, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, House of Mints, I think, um, and and sort of warehouse parties as well was sort of the first events that I went to where um, you know, House of Mints is like an explicitly queer event, but even at warehouse parties and stuff, like I would find like groups of other queer people and and you know Aboriginal people and stuff and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think eventually I just was like, I love dancing, but the music's just like not doing it for me. Where can I like take my like queer Aboriginal self to like a scene that would and still fit in, you know? And mm. that was sort of the process that got me to sort of yeah, going to like parties like House of Mints and and yeah. Um, Athletica. And, yeah, and, and Athletica yeah. as well. Yeah, for sure. Shout out Isa if you're listening in. Yeah, love you, um, Isa. <laughs> <laughs> um she she was a previous guest on this show, um, as well like such a bubbly personality yeah i thought i was happy and cheery on this show but then i met her i was like oh okay (laughs) yeah i don't even stand a chance and she's like so young as well and just like does does the most yeah really does um yeah, she's she's an angel. Incredible DJ too. Incredible DJ. Totally, to- so so underrated. <laughs> yes. Like book book eyes are damn The interesting part about you, I think, coming from a transition between emo music and then into um, dance music, it's a bit of a leap. It sounds like the culture itself was what sort of drew you to the environment where this dance music would be, and then once you're in there. You started to sort of warm to dance music, but then realized that, like you said, it's kind of all the same. So you wanted to sort of co- step in and make a statement of your own. Did you go into the dance class program with that intention, like that you wanted to sort of switch things up in the scene a little bit? Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, honestly, um, I, th- I think my main concern at the start was just like safety and just being accepted. Um mm. You know, it's it's a really scary process to transition and to start, you know, going to events and stuff again and, you know, putting yourself out there, you know. What does that feel like, um, if you don't mind me asking? Like, to go into an unfamiliar sort of space in a way that you sort of feel more comfortable in yourself and yet, obviously, internally, you're still, like, at odds with, like, oh, shit, how am I going to be perceived? How am I going to feel? What was that like? Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was really scary. Um... Like yeah, I guess it, it, it's sort of, it's sort of like first day of school, you know. Like, oh, you, just, yeah. like you, you feel like you're just like amongst this sea of changes, and you know everyone's judging you, and um, you know you feel like you, you you'll never really fit in and stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, it's um it's it's super scary, but it's it, it is also exhilarating, and you have moments, you know, when people um you know treat you in a way that's aligned with your gender. Yeah. Um, of, of euphoria, you know, and of just absolute joy, um, and and the sense of like calmness, and you know, like feeling like you know, oh yes, like <laughs> it all makes sense now. <laughs> like, this, is, this is this is this is why I felt off my entire life, you uh. know. Like, um, so yeah, it, it's this weird balance between shit scared, like what what's going to happen? Am I going to just be completely judged or like you know, not accepted? And also these moments of like. The, the most euphoric joy that you can imagine yeah um and yeah you just you know it's like any any party i guess you just go in you know you, you meet people and you start making friends and then you know you see them at other parties and stuff and yeah you just kind of like build up a little bit of a 
you know, a, a crew, I guess. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. The gang. Yeah. Yeah. The gang. <laughs> um, <laughs> what you've been saying sort of harks back to um, what you said in this interview here. I think it was for um, the NLV Presents mix, uh, where you said that you saw dance music as connected to rebirth. Um, so in that music holds this power in being able to construct and deconstruct life's like bigger themes like uh, death, uh, creation, destruction, healing, etc. When you think about music in that way, is this particular process or, you know, journey of you being finally accepted for who you are and entering a new space of dance music, is that what this relates to, what you said? Yeah, I think that's definitely a big part of it. Um, I think it's also just like... I feel like clubs are just these very unique spaces where, you know, you can just try things out. And mm. even if it's not as big of a thing as, like, coming out as transgender or, like, you know, presenting, you know, in your identified gender for the first time, um, I feel like it's this space where you can experiment and try new things. And, mm. you know, it's kind of this, like, self-contained bubble of, like, you know, you meet, you meet the people that you meet and, you know, that's the night. And then it just kind of is end there and then you can be like reflect and think about you know what what parts of that did i like what what didn't i, I like you know what what do i want to change mm. um so yeah i think that there are these spaces that just allow for like a lot of freedom i guess and and a lot of like self-expression um and i guess for me like you know i'm i'm very like um you know uh yeah emotional person i guess and um yeah, I just, you know, I work in these spaces a lot of the time that are very, you know, they don't have room for that sort of, you know, um, self-discovery. That's um, true, yeah. Or reimagining kind of stuff. Yeah. So I really, really value those spaces because they allow you to um, to present a new, you know, side to yourself. And yeah, uh, you know, we're all obviously constantly changing, but I think, yeah, clubs are a really good place to just to like try, try new things out. Yeah, hell yeah. I've tried out a lot of things at clubs. Um, <laughs> um, you, you know, in that same NLV Presents mix, uh, by the way, fucking huge that that happened as well. Nina Las Vegas, honestly, doing a lot for the community. Um, for real. Genuinely one of the most hardworking people, I feel like, um, in that upper echelon of electronic music artists. You said that this mix was dedicated to the block uh, in Redfern. So... Uh, that's very vague to me. I don't know a lot about the block. <laughs> um, but you said that it played a pivotal role in celebrating First Nations culture and arts. Unfortunately, the community uh, experienced a lot of trauma in its redevelopment and ousting of activists, including the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. So uh, this sounds like a lot of history um, going on here. Like, Can you tell me about what exactly the block is? Um, yeah, so the block is like a set of um, social housing that... Um was constructed in the 1970s. Um, it was um, something that occurred as a result of like a lot of activism mm. and, you know, Aboriginal people feeling like um, they were sort of being <clears throat> moved out of the city and like kind of, you know, gent gentrification and stuff. Um, so it was this way of like, I guess, acknowledging, you know, um, that people were kind of being um, forced out of, you know, this really culturally significant place and, you know, told to move like elsewhere. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, it, it was something that occurred on the back of like a lot of activism. It was a government, yeah, like built unit. Um, 
And yeah, it was just this, this hive, I guess, of activity for, um, a lot of activism, a lot of music, a lot of, um, you know, uh, community building. Um, so who, who was the tent embassy? Who were they? Uh, so the, the tent embassy, the, there's actually a few, like there's obviously, uh, you, you may know of this one. Um, there's one in, in Canberra, um, that's been outside Parliament House for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, 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 um, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, this, this is sort of an extension, I guess, of, of that sort of movement. Um, yeah, the tent embassy is basically just another way of just, it, it, it's basically revisiting, you know, like the, the 60s and stuff and being like, Hey, like we deserve this place to just have our community that's is very central. Um, and yeah, I guess over that, you know, 30, 40 year period where the block was like a thing, um, it just became this place where you could basically exist in like you know a, a community where all you would see is aboriginal people you know wow. which is just like nice in in new south wales like you can see that in regional and, r- and rural areas but like in the city like that's that's pretty rare so then if that was if that place was redeveloped and then you had all these indigenous people just well first nations people rather just leaving that particular vicinity where did they all go did they at the very least, were they able to still stick together was that community just completely dispersed yeah so I'll, that that to, to be to be fair, there is still a, quite a, lot, a strong Aboriginal presence, and there's still social housing units in Redfern that are like predominantly Aboriginal. Yeah. But in terms of like um, this humongous like you know structure where like thousands of people lived, um, yeah, they all they all had to move, you know. Um, and Damn. Redfern, you know, probably similar things happen in Melbourne, but the prices are going up, you know, it's, it's it's Mm. close to the city. So it's just seen as like a very desirable place to live. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're getting like a lot of, um, you know, fancy units and stuff. And, you know, even, even like shitty studios and stuff will go for like well over a million. Like 300 a week for a fucking studio these days. Jeez. Yeah. Kitchenette. Like, damn, I just want to cook on a stove. It sucks. It sucks. (laughs) No, I I get what you're saying. Yeah. So I've been told that uh, indigenous is, apparently the correct term to say but i'd also notice that you're saying aboriginal more i don't really know what i should be saying should i be saying anything in particular but i I feel like indigenous seems to be what i've been told interesting um i actually have heard the opposite people moving (laughs) people moving away from indigenous um so it's either it's either the full acronym like when you're doing like policy stuff aboriginal and torres strait islander or first nations and i I do personally really like first nations i think i think it is important to acknowledge that we were the (laughs) the first people in australia (laughs) i i was not aware of this at all yeah i think it's this thing that it's constantly shifting but um i think i think what i was told was that aboriginal the term aboriginal had negative connotations in the sense of its actual etymology. Mm. Whereas indigenous, that term appears to be a more broad term for people that were uh, native to that particular continent. So what, what's what's the reason why there's a shift towards Aboriginal now? It's, it's a good question. Um, it's honestly like, it's just kind of this thing that you, it's not like you can point to like one scholar or like one elder and be like, <laughs> this is the reason why we don't use this anymore. Um, right. I guess because of, because of my work as well, like I've, I have, um, done a lot of like policy and, you know, research stuff around, you know, First Nations people. Um, and I guess probably the core of it for me, um, came from, I, I worked at the Australian Law Reform Commission on their, um, their, um, 
inquiry into, you know, the rates of incarceration of First Nations people in Australia. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And part of that project was, what should we call the report? How should we refer to First Nations people? Mm. Um, and what I, what I heard and saw from that process was a big backlash to Indigenous Damn. Um, and, and a really strong preference for the full Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, um, wording. Okay. I think part of it was, I don't know if you remember this, but like Andrew Bolt was like using Indigenous. He's like, I'm Indigenous to Australia because I was born here, you know? Like, oh. <laughs> I think that <laughs> I think was I probably part that, yeah. of it. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. You know, and so, um, I think, I think, I think you either go specific, you go Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, or you go kind of, broader but you acknowledge that we were the first people on this country yeah okay sweet um thank you so much for educating me on this um yeah no that, that's that, that's okay and look it's not a science you know it, it is something that you just have to constantly check the pulse of it's it, it's it's interesting like that that um a lot of these particular things seem to have a changing consensus like like you said it's always in flux but i i also enjoy the fact that that there is continuing discussion around these things um, because I, I feel as though like the only way that we're able to actually like get to the core of like any particular solution or truth is if we just keep talking about it, right? Of course, there's always action, um, but then what's going to lead to action, right? Like we're just going to talk, which is why we're doing this. We're just talking. Yeah, no, totally. And you know, like part of me is like, who cares if it, if it, if it's Indigenous or First Nations when like like the the prison rates you know like yeah. the, the amount of people the, the the disproportionate amount of people in prison who are aboriginal or like the like the 10 year you know less like life expectancy like who cares when we have all these real issues yeah like, I, I think yeah. i think language language really does matter well let, let's let's talk about that actually um let's start with the work that you did with the law reform commission because um this was the pathways to justice inquiry that you worked on as a policy officer um yeah that's right for those who don't know um this was in regards to finding methods and legislative changes um, to reduce the high incarceration rates of first nations people i'd love to actually know from your perspective, what changes were required um, in order to drop these? Because I feel like you're doing some work with the project now on this, which is uh, Raise the Age. Mm. Um, is that Would that be connected to this? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so the I guess the, the Law Reform Commission report was kind of a follow-up to the, the Royal Commission. Um, mm. It was kind of like, if you actually look at the recommendations of the Royal Commission, a lot of them were quite social. Like, they were about treaties and stuff, and non 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 legislative things i guess like an atsic and uh, self-determination like a, a lot of it was actually they were like well the reason aboriginal people are so overrepresented in the criminal justice system is actually because of all the socioeconomic and you know uh intergenerational you know trauma and you know the dispossession like all the issues that were actually have nothing to do with the law or they they mm. They, they were created through law, but you can't just fix them through, like, you know, changing the Bail Act or whatever. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the, the Law Reform Commission report was an attempt to be like, well, um, let's just take a really legalistic look and, like, let's just look purely on what, what laws can we change to, like, reduce the, reduce the, you know, overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in, in prison. Yeah. Without, really looking at like the socioeconomic stuff um so yeah that 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 was where that came from um i i think like a lot of those a lot of a lot of the sort of principles and work that i did 
in that project. Um, you know, this is the nature of Aboriginal justice. They're still issues. They were issues 40 years ago, you know, um, they'll probably be issues in 20 years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, um, one thing that was interesting about that inquiry though was that, um, we're explicitly told that we're only looking at adults. Um, so only people over 18. Right. And, um, the, uh, the difficulty with that was because, um, especially because of Judge Myers, because um, he has a family law background, he was like, well, what about child protection? You know, like, what about all the stuff that happens before people turn 18? Mm. What about, you know, the people who um, enter care or, like, uh, go into juvenile detention? Um, they're the people, like, by the time that people get to adult, like, adulthood, um, in in a sense, it it's not it's not too late, but it would be a lot easier of a job if you did it, like, 10 years ago. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was really, um, it, was a, it was a great process, and I'm glad I did it, and I loved the team there, but it was very disillusioning in terms mm. of, like, the response of government. So you feel like, you, you feel like it wasn't really an effective inquiry at all? I think it was effective in the sense that it d- it did provide like a pretty good blueprint for how to do things, but it was it was more ineffective in the sense that it didn't you know conjure up the the actual will to like <laughs> to, to to implement the change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I suppose yeah. that's the case with a lot of um, these inquiries or royal commissions. They seem they seem great on paper. I mean, I worked um, particularly on the banking and finance royal commission, and. How much can I talk about here? I won't say who I worked for, but we saw a lot of crazy shit. Crazy yeah, shit. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the summary of the report, right? <laughs> A lot of crazy shit in the banking sector. <laughs> um, and, yeah, very much like you said, like, um, it doesn't always inspire really effective change. Yeah, and I, I think for me, that was a real turning point where I was like, you know what, I, I don't think I can just do pure policy anymore. I need to, like, do some case work. You know, I need to, like, at least get some individual wins, like, because otherwise it just feels like, what's the point? You know, like, the machine, yeah. Yeah, and I have huge respect for people who just continually do policy and just get ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I yeah, I think for me that was a real turning point where I was like, okay, I need to do some case work. Like, I need to, if I can't fix the big picture you know, just by doing policy alone, I want to do some amount of casework and then still try and do some of the policy stuff. But at least, you know, I know that at the end of the day I can sleep being like I've helped at least one person. Yeah, yeah, I've done something. <laughs> well, like, y- y- that y- that's something that you went on and did was working with uh, Judge Myers. Uh, and for the people who don't know, Judge Myers is the first First Nations person appointed to the federal court in Australian history. You were particularly working in the family law uh, registry, I believe, um, and assisted in running the Indigenous family law list as well. How was that experience working with Judge Myers? I, I personally never met Judge Myers. I don't know what they're like, but <laughs> I, I hope you can tell me. It was it was really good. And actually, um, we... So he was the head commissioner at the Law Reform Commission inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was almost by chance that um, I actually ended up working with him as an associate. Why, why so? What um, happened? What was so the chance? The, the commission rocked up. I was like, what am I going to do next? Like kind of freaking out of it, like, you know, need another job. Um, so I was just kind of applying for like a range of different things. And one of them was just an associate position at Parramatta um, Family Court, Family Law Courts. Mm-hmm. I, d- I don't think the position I applied for was even Judge Myers's 
associate position. It was for another judge. Oh. And and on top of that, so Judge Myers was originally from Newcastle. Um, so he moved down to Sydney to um, do the inquiry and then decided to stay. And so it was kind of like a 50-50 chance. Like he would either be at Parramatta or in the Sydney, like the CBD family law courts. Mm-hmm. Um, so as as luck would have it, he ended up at the Parramatta one. And um, apparently... Um, that my application like came across his his desk and he was like, Oh, Emma, like I know her. Like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> no shit. yeah, yeah. So it's just completely by chance. Wow. What's yeah. Judge Myers like to work with as a judge himself? He's great. Um, look, I, yeah, I, I think for me, it was my first experiences with family law. Like, I never did it in law school. Uh, I never really, it was never really an area that I'd, I'd like had a huge focus on. Um, so it was really eye-opening and it was like a big learning experience as well, I guess. Just like, yeah. you know, seeing how the sausage gets made um, sort of thing. It's emotionally charged all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was the thing. Um, but it, it's kind of, yeah. Like we, you were talking about vicarious trauma before. Mm-hmm. Out of any job, any experience I've ever had, that has been by far the one that I've experienced like the most vicarious trauma. Shit. Um, wow. And just like family law. In family law, like, family violence is just, like, such, like, a, a big part of, like, it's in the background, but it's also not also explicitly talked about all of the time. Right, yeah. Because it's law, because it's, like, a court, um, it sucks, but, like, an ABO is not, like, proof, you know, it's not, in, in the court size, it's not proof that, you know, anything happened, it's just an allegation. Mm. Basically, I would yeah, I would say ninety five percent of the cases I, I I saw that family violence was raised as an, as an issue, you know, almost always by the mother, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, every single time I was the judge was just like you know like my judge, but every judge has to be was just like so what you know like we we, we can't actually do anything with that because unless you have like a conviction, it's just an allegation. So then what? They can only rely on protection orders, and that's just about it, really? Just stay the hell away from each other? Yeah, and obviously, you know, um, the other thing about, you know, family law is, like, when by the time it gets to the court, that is, like, 0.01 of, <laughs> of the total amount of people who are separating. Mm-hmm. Almost everyone settles informally or settles at formal mediation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even even more people will have, like, one or two, like, um, you know, direction hearings, like they'll have like their first appearance at court and then within, you know, two or three, you know, like of those, then, um, they'll, they'll settle it. Mm-hmm. So the ones that get to final hearing are like the most, um, broken relationships that you can imagine. And oftentimes it's a way of continuing the violence like it's another form of violence yeah yeah it is like especially especially if the one party has like all the time and money to just be wasting on these particular legal processes as well totally and i'm glad you brought up money because that was the other thing it was so fucking incredibly expensive mm. and these are not rich people like a lot of the time like mm. they were they were they were like spending their life savings spending you know their child's education oh, on god fighting in court you know and if if you're a person who's like that person's a, an abuser i don't want their child to be with them and you you, you you're not willing to compromise on that then you, a lot of the time you will be financially ruined <laughs> by that system um and the alternative is to settle and to 
basically take back that and just be like, well, they're an abuser, but they can still see the kids sometimes. Was, was that always the case, even in uh, situations where the abuser, the abuse rather, would not only be directed towards the partner, but would also be directed towards the ch- children as well? Yeah, sim- similar thing. Um, generally, children, they would either be, uh, they'd be watching it, like they'd be in the room when it was happening. Mm-hmm. Or it would be kind of a more subtle form of family violence, like, you know, putting down the other parent. Oh, psychological abuse, yeah. Yeah, 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 that sort of thing. Um, But yeah, no, there's definitely cases where that was alleged. But I think think if you allege that they're actively harming the child, then, you know, child protective services and stuff will will get involved and, like, we'll we'll actually explore that. Yeah. Okay. The, the the gray mark area, and I would say the vast majority of cases was the ones where it was just like abuse against the other partner. The the fucking the the dis- the situations where you describe people literally wringing out their life savings just so that they can you know try and protect their child from someone that has evidently shown that they are an abuser is gut wrenching. Like it's tragic and it, it hurts. It's like as <laughs> like a feminist yeah. and like a woman being like, I believe you, and then. Yeah this system where it's like, well, well, you know, where's your proof? Mm-hmm. It, it's, I can see why that had a higher propensity to give you more vicarious trauma. Because it, it made you feel like you were part of the problem, you know, like oh you're working in God. an industry. Like you, you feel like, you know, you're kind of, but then at the same time as an associate, you have no control over the decision. No! <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like worst, worst of all worlds, you know, like there's, there's no, there's no like good, like there's no, there's no good part. Yeah. <laughs> well, how, how did Myers handle all this? Because I mean, if he's handling this shit on the daily, then he's got to be like dead inside at some point, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, he, I, I, I give him a lot of credit. He was a really good mediator and was really good at just sort of cutting, cutting through kind of you know all the all the stuff that's kind of peripheral and just being like, you know, we need to make a decision, you know, like, and just kind of just putting stuff on the table and he had like a really really high settlement rate like nice out of, out of like the amount of cases yeah w- w- which is good um but yeah i think he was he was um he, he he came across i think as like a gentle kind of pretty kind judge um yeah i don't think he would he, he would be seen as like one of the scary ones or anything by any of the <laughs> <others>. <laughs> i think he was genuinely pretty seen as pretty um pretty calm and pretty good at like getting pe- people to settle that's good so after that you went on to now work at where you're working now the public interest advocacy center and at the moment there you're a full-on solicitor yep. mostly dealing with or have been dealing with um homelessness uh, discrimination law um policing um particularly working in the police accountability and aboriginal and torres strait islander justice teams what i'm also interested in is this particular project that you're working on uh, the indigenous child protection project and raise the age mm. so this is to raise the age of legal responsibility to 14 yeah i haven't looked into this particular project um but could you give me like a little rundown as to the kind of work that you're doing for it and how it's going to affect change i mean i guess i'll just start with what the reform is so yeah please um so at the moment, yeah, children as young as 10 in every jurisdiction, like every state and territory in Australia, um, can be arrested, they can be charged, they can be brought before a court, they can be imprisoned. Um, from 10? From 10. Fucking hell. Jesus. Um, there's this weird legal doctrine that's called Dolly Interpacts, which basically says children aged 10 to 14 don't understand their actions unless 
proved otherwise. Okay. Um, but if you look at the amount of, of um, the amount of people, in, the amount of children aged 10 to 13 in prison, like it's a, it's a presumption, but it doesn't prevent like, you know, thousands or hundreds of children being, you know, um, imprisoned every year. Mm. Um, you know, by far, like most who are Aboriginal, like o- over 60% are Aboriginal. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the, the idea is like, let's get rid of Dolly and Capax. Like, let's get rid of this weird common law, like doctrine, which clearly doesn't work and doesn't protect children and is also racist. Mm-hmm. And let's just raise the age to 14. So if you were under 14, you would be dealt with in the same way that a nine year old is currently dealt with, you know, where you couldn't, you couldn't be charged with a crime. Couldn't be bought for a court. You couldn't be arrested. You couldn't be, you know, put on bail. You mm. couldn't, you couldn't be put in prison. Um, all those sorts of things. Um, Do you mind me asking, with that particular doctrine, why was the option of changing the conditions of that particular caveat at the end, unless proven otherwise? Um, why was that not uh, something that was looked into instead of actually removing the doctrine entirely? Um, well, I mean, we've had it for a long time and it's just clearly not working. Like, it's not it's not protecting children. And, right, right, right. You know, police and stuff know about, know about the doctrine. And, you know, we've heard cases from the Aboriginal Legal Service where they'll go to, you know, a kid's place when, you know, on their 10th birthday and, like, read out a list of, you know, 20 questions or whatever and, and like, ask them, ask them to answer them. And... The, those sorts of things are meant to be used to show that you understand what you're doing, you know? Right, right, right. Okay. So it's, it's like a game, basically, and police and stuff know how to get around it. So essentially the rule in and of itself should have worked, but the application of it, it just was impossible. Well, the proper implementation of it. Yeah, and also there's the other thing where it's like, if you do, if you, if you, if you offend once, then... You know, maybe you would get Dolly, but the second time you're like, no, you should have known better. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, what we know now is like their brain, just because they've been bought before court once, doesn't mean that their brains have suddenly turned into an 18 year old. You know, like they're still, they're still fucking children yeah. and like don't, don't have like, an, a proper understanding of like what they did. It's, it's good work that you do with this. I mean, I can see, I can see the reasoning as to why um, that age would need to increase there. You've also done some work doing outreach at the shed in Mount Druitt, um, I remember. Um, what was that like, um, actually being on the ground and doing work like that? It was so nice. Um, I really miss it, actually. Um, so I worked in the homelessness team for about a year and a half when I first started at PIA, but I've since transitioned out of that team. So, yeah, I'm only in sort of the police, the police accountability, prisons and detention, and the child protection teams at the moment and then also doing the raise the age stuff mm. um but yeah no, it, it, it's um it's hard to describe but it's basically a place in mount druid that puts on a barbecue um you know once a week um and a bunch of local people come um yeah like the, the majority are men but women women do also come there and mm. they're you know 90 plus percent Aboriginal as well. And, um, yeah, you basically, you just sit around, you know, you sort of like walk up to people, you're like, oh, hey, how are you going? You know, like, this is what I do. Like, um, I'll be around if you want to come find me later. Um, so it, it's very informal. It's very casual. Mm. And like a lot of the time, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, no, no. A lot of the time people don't know that they have legal issues. Oh, true. Or like unmet legal need, you know? Yeah. So 
you really do have to have a conversation with people that's like, oh, like, oh, yeah, I have a housing, you know, I, I, my maintenance that hasn't been fixed on my social housing or whatever. Like, that, that is potentially a legal issue. Mm. You know, like, you, you're, you're in a tenancy, you have rights under, under the Tenancy Act and stuff. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's this process of, A, building trust and just being, like, very casual and, you know, kind of either being very gentle and being like hey this is what i do or just like letting people come up to you mm. um and then it's just like you go week in week out and you sort of um, build up that relationship and trust with that community and then eventually people will like oh like i'm gonna bring my, my brother or like you know my cousin next time because they've got a legal issue um so yeah it, it really is just that boots on the ground and kind of like building that trust well i guess that's what community law was always about from the very beginning it was just boots on the ground sort of stuff like you gotta yeah actually deal with the people that are having these issues in the community by the way working in police accountability the pol- do the police hate you <laughs> <laughs> um i don't think they i don't think they care <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> um but you're always pulling them up on shit surely yeah well they have lawyers right so yeah uh, yeah it's not like the individual police officers ever actually uh a lot of the time they don't even get told that what they did is unlawful which is shocking what? but the truth yeah a lot of the time they don't so the lawyers just kind of stop it at the buck there. Yeah, well, they just like they settle it. But Fucking hell. Yeah, the police officer just like never knows that that particular incident was something that they shouldn't. You know, they didn't have the legal authority to do. So it's it's so removed from the actual individual police officers. So I don't think they hate me. I mean, I think the police lawyers maybe hate us, but <laughs> police themselves don't. <laughs> it's kind of fucked up that the police don't even get you know discipline discipline for any of the actions that they seem to be unlawfully doing yeah and look i don't want to say it's 100 percent of the time but yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. definitely a, a big uh, you know a, a sizable amount of the, of the time yeah for sure it, it's fucked also we're all taxpayers it's just like yeah true i'm i'm fucking paying tax for like this guy to like break the law like <laughs> i mean this police officer sorry not this guy this guy <laughs> this person whose entire job is to enforce the law just doesn't doesn't even know and like i'm paying for his legal fees like fuck that this is inefficient taxes <laughs> it, by the way I saw in a description um, of of you before that um, you describe yourself as a sister girl. And so when I read this, uh, I, I, I thought, okay, does that mean trans? But then I saw that trans was also next to the term sister girl. And I was like, oh, they're separate things. I looked into this and I found that it's a term that's used by First Nations people to describe um, gender diverse people that have a, um, in the case of a sister girl, a female gendered spirit and take on um, the female's role within the community. This sounds really similar to Samoan Fafafines. Um, yeah. Have you heard of them? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Um, there are, are a lot of, and there's, you know, there's like um, hijaras and stuff in, in, um, in, in, you know, in India. And yeah. Right. The, this is a phenomenon that has occurred independently in multiple, you know, First Nations um communities that's so interesting right yeah like was this the case even before you had transitioned or was this something that came along with your transition yeah i i guess firstly i just would say that not all not all people who are sort of gender diverse you can be a sister girl without being trans mm. you know like without without identifying as trans and by same, same as the same as the fuffers as well yeah. yeah like they're not they're not like a overlapping the the kind of separate things yeah um but yeah no i guess it was part of it was part of my sort of journey of um figuring out who i was that you know when i sort of realized i was trans that i um i started 
yeah, looking more into it and found out that, yeah, it's this thing that has existed for thousands of years in, in, in Australia. And yeah, it, it, felt, it felt, you know, felt good to like be part of a community, I guess, and to know that, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not alone, which is so often the case of trans stuff. Mm. Like you just feel completely, um, by, by yourself so yeah but now you got your gang yeah Shendel gang yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh there's one more thing that i'd like to ask you about um before we head off into your fantastic mix that you've made for us here today by the way thank you so much for doing so i really appreciate yeah, it yeah no worries i want to talk to you a little bit about uh netball because yeah. i've read in an interview that you did with netball australia um that you didn't play sports for over eight years yeah like eight years um because you felt like you wouldn't be accepted due to being trans yeah and now you play seven to eight games a week um, <laughs> yeah and your team's accepted you with open arms and they even helped you to how to learn how to play netball as well yeah you said that also you encourage trans transgender people to participate in community sport it helps change attitudes and normalize acceptance as well this obviously brings up a very hot topic that came up in the last olympics this was uh, something that was discussed when uh, New Zealand had uh, selected the first trans athlete by the name of Laurel Hubbard, uh, who was competing in women's weightlifting. A lot of people said that she had an unfair advantage uh, going through puberty as a male uh, with increased bone and muscle density. Other athletes have spoken out that they don't agree with it either. And um, basically, there's been a lot of discussion about this. Mm. Um, I'd love to get your opinion on this as a trans sports person. <laughs> well, uh, amateur sports person. Uh, what do you feel about this situation? I guess I'm... Firstly, I'm just like not a scientist or a doctor. Yeah, of course. But as a layperson. Opinion. But yeah, like, uh, look, I mean, the fact that the Olympics accepts transgender athletes, I think, is kind of all you, all, all you need to know. Like, they're, they're an organization that's quite conservative and they didn't, they didn't move to, like, include transgender people just because they thought it was, like, the right thing to do. They did a lot of you know medical studies and stuff and yeah i mean it's you know i guess that the root of the question is like what is an unfair advantage like you know mm. obviously there are certain events that are just like won by the same country every time or the same two or three countries every time and it's just like where do you where do you draw the line you know what I mean? Like, well, an unfair advantage in the Olympics, especially, is mostly economic advantage. Yeah, like it's usually um, it's cultural countries as well. With, like if your country yeah. is, is a country that cares about that sport, you know, yeah. Mm, yep, yep, yep. I mean, you f hardly find countries from the African continent competing in like archery. Yeah, right? like <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um, what you're saying is is that the um, the line of what an unfair advantage is has already been sort of. Uh, measured and stretched and the olympic committee being such a conservative organization wouldn't have made this decision lightly yeah and it's gone through multiple general uh, iterations so at one point getting surgery was one of the requirements to compete and it's no longer because why <laughs> <laughs> why would you why would you do that to someone uh, yeah. like boston to have surgery um, do they measure uh, yeah. like testosterone levels or something like that? Like that was meant to be a thing. Yeah, so that's the way it works. So yeah, so I guess the other thing is people should know is that um, transgender men like aren't really part of this conversation because like mm, no one yeah. cares because they think that they're at a natural disadvantage, which is also interesting. So this conversation is really just about transgender women. Yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, my my view is like biology or like you know the way that you're built there's a variation across 
all groups of people mm-hmm. and transgender people are just part of that natural variation. We talked about, you know, some certain countries being better at or doing traditionally well at certain sports and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, humans are a spectrum, you know, and transgender people are just part of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing is like transgender women, like the, who take medication, um, you know, hormones, um, uh, testosterone blockers are incredibly effective. <clears throat> they're they're so effective. They're so effective. In fact, that we actually have much less testosterone than like cisgender or non transgender women. Oh shit! Um, who have like spikes, you know, waves or whatever, like where it'll it'll go up and down over time. Yep. Whereas for transgender women, it's basically just flat all the time. So if anything, you could argue that we're at a disadvantage. Interesting. The the fact that you had to be helped learn how to play netball in and of itself says <laughs> says enough. I feel like like there's there, obviously there's like you know whatever like people can argue testosterone or this and that, but if you don't know how to play it, <laughs> then yeah, that, that's not an issue. Yeah, um, and you know community sport I think is a different thing. Like um, hell yeah, exactly. Just the more people who play community sport, like the healthier you know happier a society we will be. Exactly. So, Emma, I understand that I've kept you for much longer than I had promised, but <laughs> That's all right. um, I do appreciate your patience um, and also for no, having such a good conversation and discussion with me today about all these things that I've been so curious to know about you. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. yeah. I hope you've had fun. Yeah, I had I had heaps of fun. And yeah, I would definitely be curious to hear more about um, your legal background at, at some point. Uh, may, may, yes. Maybe next time I'm in Melbourne. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. We'll catch up for many a discussion and many a legal conversation. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today. People, thank you so, so, so much to you as well for tuning in for another week of Spinning Around. I am so blessed to have everybody tuning in as faithfully as you, and I really do appreciate you taking interest in not only myself, but also the wonderful, beautiful artists of this community that we call home. People, Thank you for tuning in once again. You've been listening to Spinning Around with Haile Minogue on Area 3000 playing Crescendo right now. All right. We're all good.